millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that leafs through the libraries of films from the world's greatest animation studios. I'm Michael Leader. Welcome back, folks. Now, I said Ghibliotech up top in that intro, but this is a treat. For this episode, we're returning to the cartoon Salooniverse. Long-term listeners may remember that back at the beginning of 2021, we branched out from Japanese animation to cover the work of Irish studio Cartoon Saloon, with their films ranging from The Secret of Kells to Song of the Sea to The Breadwinner to Wolfwalkers. We also spoke to a bunch of people who worked on those films, but one person evaded us, and that was studio co-founder and director Nora Toomey. But friends, we got her. Back at the London Film Festival, Nora was in town for the unveiling of her new film, My Father's Dragon, and we had the honour of sitting down and speaking with her about the film, about her career to date, her inspirations, her ethos behind her work, and the running of Cartoon Saloon. My Father's Dragon premieres on Netflix today, 11th of November. Um, We do talk about the film in a bit of depth, but with no spoilers. But let's bring us all up to speed with a blurb direct from Netflix HQ. From five-time Academy Award-nominated animation studio Cartoon Saloon and Academy Award-nominated director Nora Toomey comes an exquisite film inspired by the Newbury-honoured children's book from author Ruth Stiles Gannett. Struggling to cope after a move to the city with his mother, Elmer runs away in search of Wild Island and a young dragon who waits to be rescued. Elmer's adventures introduce him to ferocious beasts, a mysterious island, and the friendship of a lifetime. Now, let's hear from Nora Toomey. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Nora Toomey, thank you so much for joining me today. It's such a pleasure. Congratulations. So many years in the making, my father's dragon. Yeah. Now on screen. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing to see that it's uh yeah, finally finally going to be out there now. So yeah, and and the fact that it's going to be on Netflix as well, I think is a kind of an interesting one for us in Cartoon Saloon. We've always, I guess, kind of struggled to reach an audience. So just the idea that it's like one click away from November eleventh, it's it's a bit mind blowing for me, you know, in that um I yeah, I just love the idea that so many people can can just access our film now. Mm. I think that's that's uh, something I'm really happy with. Yeah. Did having that in mind change how we approached that this film at all, knowing that it would be a broad international audience almost at a flick of a button? Um, I, mm, I, I guess it did. I suppose in that uh, you know we always tr- uh, we we connect with what it is that we need to connect with. I guess you know to to make each of our films. And so I had a very kind of deep and personal and heartfelt kind of connection to the character of Elmer, the mm. friendship with Elmer and Boris are the two main characters in the film. And so that's what kind of really drew me in when I, you know, we, we looked at the source material, uh, My Father's Dragon um, uh, the children's book by Ruth Stiles Gannett. There were particular pages in that that really spoke to me. And so that's what kind of um, really kind of hooked me when Netflix came on board and the opportunity that they could offer us, not just in the audience that we could reach, but also just in what we could afford to do on this film. Um, I think those were things that I couldn't I couldn't walk away from because they just um, I mean, I'm a storyteller, so if you want to be, you know, if, as a storyteller, you want you want to reach audiences. And I think that's what we were. We really, you know, we had such an opportunity with this film mm-hmm. to do. And what were those? What were on those pages that spoke to you? Because this is a book from 1948. Uh, what yeah. was it that you wanted to share with a 2022 audience? Yeah, you know, there was, there was a particular page in the book um, where Elmer, Elmer's the main character, and he um, finds a stray alley cat and he gives that cat a saucer of milk and then his mom gets really angry with him. And that's the page that really, I think, um, gripped me because I thought, what's going on in their life that a saucer of milk is a big deal? Mm-hmm. And what does Elmer think when he looks up into his mom's face and realizes she's getting really angry about a saucer of milk and what's she not telling me? And so the that 
of like the, the potential to layer the story in a way that it had, you know, very real elements to it. Um, but also had a fantastical island that's almost a character in and of itself, you know, a, a, a magic, you know, a dragon that, that you know, it has the potential to, you know, solve all Elmer's problems and, you know, answer all these questions and all of that. Um, the, 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 the potential of marrying that kind of like the, the, the more serious undertones and then the children's imagination, you know, I think mm. for me that's what was really, really gripping. Yeah, so... Tell me about that process of adaptation and working with Meg Lefauve, um and what, what she brought to the project. What did she bring? Yeah, so we knew we didn't want to do like a, a straight adaptation because um, at the end of the book, Elmer just, you know, meets Boris the dragon. He just rescues him. So w w we knew that we wanted to spend a lot of time on the island itself, um, you know, because there, there are so many amazing wild animals on that island. And because uh, we wanted to make the friendship between Elmer and Boris the heart of the film, mm. um, we knew then there wasn't going to be a straight adaptation and it was going to be more um, a, a, a film that's inspired by the book. I um, I went to visit uh, Ruth Stiles Gannett, the author of the book, in a little village in upstate New York called Trumansburg, um, to ask her what it was about Elmer that really spoke to her what was it that she wanted to communicate with the character of Elmer and she said that as a child he was a character that really thought for himself you know he wasn't just you know going to see what adults thought about something and then you know he would just do that or, or think that or say that he was somebody who was going to think for himself and look for the truth no matter what that cost him or cost the people around him that he was going to just you know look look for that truth and that that sense of meaning and so Meg is an incredible writer and she really, you know, she really pushes hard on, on story because she knows that, you know, to, to animate a film takes it's such a long process that you really have to make sure your story is really tight um, because, you know, you always have to ask yourself what's worth animating. If it takes an animator a week to animate four seconds of a performance, you better make sure your story is as you know solid as you can make it. Um, and so she is just so brilliant at making sure that the the plot and the characters, you know, the your main character of Elmer, they're interwoven in a way that one cannot be without the other. And so working with Meg for me was a, you know, it was a massive education. But then the screenplay is half the story in an animated film because you also have the storyboarding process because in animation you have to edit your film up front you don't leave it like with live action you know when you've shot all your footage then you decide you can recreate the story you have to do all that work up front uh, you know uh, with animation because you can't afford to animate you know spare footage or you know d uh, extra scenes in case you might need them you need to uh, you need to do all that beforehand so our story team was led by Giovanna Ferrari and she's again and just an incredibly um, emotional um storyteller and so with our team our entire team and with our, our editor Richard Co uh, Richie Cody uh, and Darren Holmes we just um, just started to mold that story together in a way that that just felt emotionally right for all of us absolutely it's something that strike struck us when we went through cartoon saloons films is that sense of these returning names in the whole crew yeah. and the sense of almost uh, fostering talent for the future and even looking here and seeing Joanna Ferrari or Louise Magno or Fabian Ellinghauser, names that have been involved all the way through the process for um, a decade going on now. Um, is that something that's important to you at Cartoon Saloon to foster that future talent? 
Absolutely. I think both with, um, you know, people that we're, we're used to working with and who have worked with other, over lots of different projects or, you know, newer members of our crew. Actually, some people who are so new that they would have grown up with the secret of Kells and then <laughs> gone to college and then came out and worked for us. Um, th- th- uh, that's something that is very important. You know, all storytelling. Uh, there's a myth of an auteur or mm-hmm. a, like a single vision or, you know, um, and it's never the case if you're a good director you know where good ideas are you know yeah. sometimes you have them yourself sometimes you know an intern you know comes in and, and asks a question that like you know blows everybody's mind and you know or sometimes it's you know your uh, cast member you you just have to be able to recognize where good ideas are mm-hmm. make sure that they're aligned with the story that you're telling know you know very you know seriously and and, and carefully exactly what the heart of your film is and what the the the, the main themes of your film uh, are and you know and just to bring those together you know it, it, I, I think it takes more strength as a director to say i don't know <laughs> <laughs> sometimes than it does to say okay well this is where we're going and this is my vision and shut up if you don't agree with me kind of thing um you know t- you have to let people in uh, because that's how the story becomes strong and for people to bring their own personal experiences to the characters uh, means that your film becomes universal then and so long as they're all pulling in the same direction um then that then that's it you've you've done your job as a director it is wild i suppose uh, to see people who grew up watching the films you made 10 years ago now going through college and wanting to work with you but i suppose to take us back to the late 90s and 1999 the foundation of the studio what was your vision and dreams uh, for cartoon saloon back then um to be able to keep the lights on <laughs> to be able to feed ourselves pay our rent um we <laughs> you know uh, animation is such a funny thing because it's caught between kind of art and and commerce and so keeping the lights on was a very real concern for us and we you know cut our teeth as directors on these little things like called uh, little digital kind of greeting cards that we used to kind of make and make a couple of hundred you know dollars or something like that every week just by creating little short little snippets of stories uh, we did that. We did short films. We, of course, had the idea of making The Secret of Kells, but that seemed a, even a little far away at the time. We weren't great business people. <laughs> so uh, if if somebody had you know asked us to make a five year plan, you know, we, we probably would have looked at it and said, OK, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So let's just stop and go and work for a games company or go and go to the US and work for one of the big studios. But we just were attracted to working together telling stories together, um, keeping hand-drawn animation alive. Mm. Uh, and that's what gelled us, you know, um, uh, rather than uh, rather than a grand vision of, mm. OK, in 20 years time, we want to be making films for Netflix and, you know, all of this kind of thing. It was it was more um, it was more of a just, yeah, what, what can we do to get the next project made? And we just looked project to project. Um, and so before we knew it, we had a body of work around us. So maybe other people are, are better at, at um, looking at us from the outside and kind of recognizing, you know, repeated patterns or mm-hmm, themes in mm-hmm. our work or whatever. But we just do we wherever our hearts take us, honestly, that's where we go. And that's where we know that we can build a team around that if we have that, um, I suppose, honesty around the work that we do and the work that we're doing together, then we'll be able to build a team around the, mm-hmm. our projects. And that's something that as a fan of your work, I'm definitely the sort of person who tries to <laughs> see those repeated patterns. <laughs> and I suppose uh, this may be an unfair characterization, but 
going even all the way back to From Darkness, the short mm. film, mm. looking to Inuit storytelling traditions for inspiration, and then the breadwinner looking uh, you know, to the Middle East, and now this is a, a, a very much an American story and in its, in, in its voices and everything and its setting. Is it unfair to say to see that as a, a sort of an interesting global storytelling traditions compared to maybe some of your colleagues who look closer to home and give Ireland to the world? Yeah, um, I guess what excites me most about storytelling is when um, I grew up with a story that's similar to a story that you know from Afghanistan or mm. or you know an Inuit um, folktale when they're recurring themes. Then that kind of gives me hope because it makes me think that people are kind of the same, no matter what culture you grow up in that people are kind of the same and that we look for similar things we might hold similar values and and that and that and that you know that that ma that makes me feel good about mm -hmm. mankind really so that's why i guess i am a little bit maybe more attracted to stories that are a little bit more outside my own experience because i know i can bring my own experience to mm -hmm. them but i think all culture you know, it, when we were making The Breadwinner and we started to research Afghanistan and talk to Afghan people and then we realized that, like, you dig up the ground in Afghanistan, you realize it's part of the Silk Road and you can see artifacts that have influences from China and influences from India and influences from Europe, um, you know, I in South Asia. So, like, it, it's it, it's that kind of stuff. that th It makes you think that that's what culture is. It's the mixing, it's the being excited by how somebody else looks or feels or how they grew up and realizing that you can connect to that. I think that's what that's that is what culture is. And so that's what I, I, I love. I love doing or But that's what inspires me is that the, the ability to connect mm. with somebody else. And the, the power of storytelling is definitely a, a thread that runs through I think all of cartoon saloons films, the stories we tell ourselves, stories we tell each other, how those stories are shaped, who gets to tell them. And I suppose a, a question that to take you all the way back to the beginning, was there a story or a film that inspired you to go into this line of work to dedicate your life to telling stories yourself? Yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I kind of stumbled into animation myself, having realized, you know, after starting college that you could actually make a living, you know, <laughs> slowly but surely uh, out of it. Um, but as a child, yeah, I mean, I, I was always storytelling, whether it was with dolls or with pieces of paper or, you know, whatever I could get my hands on. I was kind of making up beginnings, middles and ends all the time. Um, I do remember watching The Wizard of Oz um, in a, we had a little like portable TV in our kitchen and uh, watching it and just loving the feel of it. It wasn't even like what was being said or what was being, you know, what was happening on screen there was just a feeling it made me feel something <laughs> in a particular way and i i just wanted to recreate that i wanted to go there i thought that there, you know in th those kind of like big studio enclosed sets i had no idea what that was or, or why it looked a certain way or what a matte painting was but i could feel you know that there was like hands involved in making things and and painting things and the costumes and all of that kind of stuff it just um it, it just uh, it just spoke to me, I guess. And in ways, I always look to stories as some kind of companion. We all do, right? We, we all look to stories as, okay, give me something. I, I need to read something or watch something or see something that, that, that lets me know that somebody else had a tough time or somebody else got through something. Um, so is that 
you know, when you when you're going through your own, you know, tough times or conflicts or whatever, it's it's like a like a crutch or like a like something that you can you can lean on to, to mm -hmm. let you know, OK, if this has happened to somebody before, it's going to happen to somebody again. And I'm just, you know, part of it. Mm. And when you were at college and studying animation, making steps into that world, were there particular animators or films that you saw that you would hope to make someday yourself in a similar vein? Or oh, yeah. well, I, you know, as as a student, the um, the Prince and the Eight-Headed Dragon. Oh, I think that was when we came to Cartoon Saloon first. Mm. I think somebody had that on a cassette on a, right. on a VHS and we all watched it and we were like, oh my God, look at this, it's amazing. Watching the prince run and just cry rivers of tears in this really angry kind of way that I'd never seen in a kind of Western, you know, <laughs> animated mm -hmm. film. Uh, that was that was pretty mind blowing. But all all of the films of Ghibli, you know, uh, mm. uh, especially Totoro. I think Totoro still speaks to me, you know, uh, and again in in different ways. I love that that's such a layered story. Um, when you look at what's get, you know, that the, the two girls are having this kind of amazing, fantastical adventure, but then there's a sense of reality to it too, with mm -hmm. what's going on with the mom and um, visiting her, or you know, getting to see her through the window in the film that's still really 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 connects with me i took i used to take my own children when they were small to um to a local forest where there was a blackboard and we used to draw totoro on the, on the blackboard every time we go and visit you know uh, in uh, that forest um so yeah i mean there there are films that stay with you through your life and they're like good friends that kind of just help you uh, along the way um it's a continual like anytime i get to go to annecy you know one of these mm. you know, or, or festival like um, you know, London here, you know, you, you get to see more films that then, uh, you know, have the potential to become friends. Mm. It's, I'm, I'm finding this myself that my relationship to certain animated films as I've been watching for 20 odd years, like Totoro, has changed since I've had a kid of my own and he's just turned four. He's terrified of Totoro. Really? Because he, wow. <laughs> he thinks he's got this big mouth full of teeth yeah. that he's going to eat yeah. May at the beginning. But he's so um, sort of beguiled by the cat bus because he loves cats. Um, did that change for you uh, when, when you, once you became a parent, your your relationship with animation and telling, to telling stories? Absolutely. Um, a film that uh, actually was a touchstone for My Father's Dragon uh, is the, Ar uh, the Iron Giant, you know, because again, it's it's more a film that's more inspired by the original material, you know, the, the, the book, um, rather than rather than uh, like a, a, a straight adaptation. And so that became a touchstone for me with My Father's Dragon. I remember I remember watching that as a as a um, student, and actually we we share it, our editor, <laughs> one of our editors from My Father Dragon also worked on, on the Iron Giant was a, right. an editor on on that, and so I remember as a as a student being a little disappointed with the ending uh, because that the the you know the, the the giant starts to come back you know. I really I, I love sacrifice in a film, the idea of sacrifice. So for anything to have meaning, really, you know, it involves sacrifice. That's the story of, you know, Jesus Christ is, you know, is, is that the kind of sacrifice. And we all take things seriously when we know that somebody when it, when something costs. Right. And so I was, um, you know, I, I love that film so much. And then the very ending as a student, I was like, oh, look, you know, that, you know, the, the, you take away the sacrifice or, you, you know, the, the sacrifice now means nothing because you know, because uh, you, you see the, the, the giant coming together at the end again. And then <clears throat> as a parent, I was so happy <laughs> with that hope at the end. It's the hope. And I got to understand the film in a completely different way. And uh, and I realized that my children needed to see that 
you know that the giant will always be there for you you know then you can always call him the giant um and so that that was a that was a huge one for me seeing that I was as a student I was um I didn't see the whole picture <laughs> and as a parent I got to see the whole picture I think there are a few film critics and film fans out there who see that happen with certain filmmakers maybe when they're young and they say oh Spielberg you can tell when Spielberg Spielberg became a father and his his films change um but then as they grow older they realize why a worldview yeah. shifts because uh, having children is a big thing but then i suppose the, the the children you're serving with your film are the children in the audience as well so um do you always have them in mind and the messages you're imparting in your films when you're making them? Yeah, so way back with The Secret of Kells was the first time that I became really aware, I suppose, that we were making a film about a monastery being destroyed mm. and it had a, a lot of sacrifice in it and there was no getting around that and yet we were making an animated uh, film and we wanted a broad audience to be able to see this film and appreciate it it was the first time really I consciously, you know, with Tom and with the team started to, especially in the edit and again, the edit happening up front and in the storyboarding, look at ways of layering the story. Um, so you can have your deep themes, you can have your sacrifice, you can have lighter moments and you can have, you know, meaningful connections with your characters. Um, and you can layer it, you know, and that's I think the beauty of 2D in particular mm -hmm. it, is that it allows you to layer story and it allows you to introduce symbols uh, into the film in a way that maybe, you know, only adults will get those um, and then children will get a whole other layer of that storytelling or maybe those children will come back as adults and rewatch the, the film and, and see different things in it as I did with, you know, The Iron Giant, for example, or, you know, even The Wizard of Oz. Um, I think, yeah, I, 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 I'm always aware of all of our audience. I'm also aware that we're just asking people for their time. That's a huge privilege when you realize as a director that you're, you're telling a story and then you're asking somebody for 90 minutes or more kind of thing of, of their lives. Um, that's a big responsibility and it's something I don't ever take lightly. And I don't think anybody on the team, whether it's, you know, uh, Tom working on you know the, the the trilogy or you know Giovanna and, and Meg and Fabian and uh, Richie everybody working on on My Father's Dragon, we take it really seriously because that is a big ask you know ninety minutes is a big ask, um, and especially now with My Father's Dragon, and as I said you can you can just you can just click <laughs> and there, there's the film on Netflix and uh, that's 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 so huge um, that that we can you know that you can just make a choice it doesn't have to be a huge thing where you need a lot of money to go, you know, to the cinema. Uh, you, you can just make that very personal decision or you can make that decision for your family um, to, to just watch this film. That's a, that's, that's a privilege as a director. And how did that sort of influence on the opening of My Father's Dragon? Because that really does start with a very layered opening act where the adults in the room will understand all of the anxieties that this single parent family are going through moving to the big city being almost literally penniless in, in doing so um when you know you're also sort of writing a contract with the kids in the room as well so how did you balance those two things we looked at the that opening through elmer's eyes mm -hmm. and again this goes back to ruth you know the author of you know um looking at Elmer as a as a, a child who thinks for himself that ha is autonomous who will go and try and fix things if they're broken 
Um, so we looked at that through his eyes. Um, who was it that said you, you can't let your audience kind of jump ahead of you like for more than like 10 seconds, you know, kind of thing. It's better to confuse them for, you know, um, a minute rather than to let, let them run ahead of you. And so we do that uh, with Elmer. We just stay on his level the whole time and we see the world through his eyes and we figure things out as he figures them out, no matter what's going on in the film. And so, um, so you know, having him as our guide through that experience and making sure that that opening is really immersive. We weave through the shop, you know, that store uh, with Elmer as he tries to, you know, as he knows where everything is and he says you know, hello to people without even having to look at them because his life is so predictable and safe and secure. And when we pull the rug <laughs> out from under him, we really feel it with him and we feel that sense of imbalance. But we're, you know, he's our guide. He's our, our voice all the way through the film. Mm. To go back to Cartoon Saloon as a studio, watching the films for the, the last decade or decade and a half, um, we, we get this I mean, in our heads, the dramatist persona of the studio. And how would you characterize the role you play within the studio alongside Tom and Paul and all these other names up top as the founders? Yeah, you know, and again, I don't know, <laughs> maybe that's a question that's best answered by somebody else rather than me looking at myself, but <laughs> because it changes and it, it honestly changed uh, uh, in different decades of my mm. life. So I, I never really set out to be a director. And so even with The Secret of Kells, uh, when Tom asked me to come on as a co-director, it was very much to kind of serve the story that he and Aidan Hart had kind of s started out with, you know. And so I looked to what I could bring to that and I knew that I was, you know, good at editing and I was good at, uh, you know, storytelling and storyboarding and that I could, you know, come in that way through um, to to, you know, to 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 do what I needed to do for th for that film. Um, and then for Song of the Sea, I came on as head of story for that again to to try and help Tom and Will Collins, the the, the, the writer. Um, just dig into the heart of it and to make sure that that family feeling was the center of it. But by that time, I had my own, you know, starting my own family. Mm. And so I took a little bit of a step back for a while and started to work as a creative producer in the, you know, the, uh, on the different projects that we had going on. We'd also learned a big lesson from The Secret of Kells where we had thrown everybody and everything we had onto those, you know, onto that because we, our studio expanded at that time. Um, and so we wanted to make sure that, um, you know, that, 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 that we could, you know, still tell the best story we could, we could possibly uh, tell, but we had nothing in development after that. So, um, so it, it, we, our roles kind of change, even looking at, you know, Tom and Paul, our, our roles kind of change depending on what each other needs and what the company needs. And so we do kind of, you know, keep our ear to the ground and try and react and, and predict what the company needs uh, when it does. But when a when a story, we, we are essentially just a bunch of storytellers drawn together, you know, so the, we, we, we do um, that still is the heart of it. And, and when Tom has an idea, I support it 100 percent. When I have an idea, you know, something I want to do, he does the same and the same with Paul. We support Paul 100 percent as well. Mm. Um, you know, in, in, in what he the stories that he wants to tell. I think that shines through for all fans and people who dream of working in the studio all around the world, I think. I suppose you, you say you, you keep your ear to the ground about what the future of the studio is. Um, what, what, is the, what is the future? What do you look forward to for Cartoon Saloon? Oh, we, we have a number of projects in development and I think you'll be really um, happy to see our slate when we kind of uh, un unroll it. But we, yeah, we are both... Um, 
um, you know, supporting new filmmakers in the studio. And then also we are, you know, looking to direct just more um, films that, again, kind of have that cartoon saloon, I suppose, heart uh, to them. So we, we, yeah, we have a number of uh, projects uh, in development at the moment, and I'm really excited about the future. Can't wait to hear more. My final question, this is a question we ask all our guests. Um, for some context for it when we started this podcast the whole concept behind the podcast is that I had seen all the Studio Ghibli's films and I loved them my co-host hadn't seen any of them and so I was taking him along on this journey introducing him to this studio that had a body of work that was worth digging into and then since then we've identified these other filmmakers and studios that similarly had a, a body of work and ethos a worldview that was worth digging into as filmographies so Cartoon Saloon Satoshi Kon Mamoru Hosoda most recently we did Henry Selick and the question that we like to spring on our guests is is there any studio or filmmaker that comes to mind that you think is worth digging into in that way? Oh, Guillermo del Toro, <laughs> without uh, without a doubt. Um, I just think again his love for the medium and every like I I, I was lucky enough to meet him a, 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 on a number of occasions and he just is so interested in the craft and story. Um, and I just for me, um, Pan's Labyrinth is also a massive touchstone from the opening um, of that film. I think. I, it was the first time I became aware ever <laughs> that my mouth was my jaw literally kind of hung open just when I when I watched that film for the first time I realized I like this was a very special filmmaker uh, with a particular way of looking at life which was just um, just outstanding so every time he makes a film I just can't wait for it um, I'm really looking forward to Pinocchio which is also on Netflix of course in December um, and I just I yeah, he's just a, a hero of mine. And, and I, I go back. It's my, my my comfort food every now and again. I go back to Pan's Labyrinth just to rediscover what it is. That's what's the joy of filmmaking. What's the joy of uh, being an audience member? And what's the joy of, of being taken on a journey with a, an amazing character? Yeah, no complaints there. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing filmmaker filmography. Nora, thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been such a treat and good luck with My Father's Dragon. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you to Nora Toomey for joining us this week, charting the many creative galaxies of the cartoon Salooniverse. Always a pleasure to watch and dig into their films, and we can't wait to see more from them. Who knows what's coming up next? And there's some really wonderful film recommendations in there too. Guillermo del Toro, eh? Well, wouldn't that be a fun mini-series? And it would end on a stop-motion film, as his latest film is Pinocchio. Perfect. Thanks too to James Knox at Netflix, Will Taylor and Lydia Dunkley at Organic for setting up that interview. Hope you enjoyed that chat, listeners. You can get in touch with us at Ghibliotech on Twitter, ghibliotech.pod on Instagram, or via email at ghibliotech at gmail.com. We're actually back again next week with another interview special, speaking with another one of the great animation directors working today, Naoko Yamada. Gosh, her films include A Silent Voice, Liz and the Bluebird, TV series such as K-On!, She's routinely one of the most requested filmmakers for us to cover on this podcast, so it was a real treat to get to speak with her. 
Look out for that and watch the skies for more Ghibliotech Anime Movie Guide book tour news. We love getting out and about, screening films, signing books, geeking out with people. Maybe we'll be swinging by your neighbourhood soon. Thanks for listening. You can also catch us on Twitter individually. Steph is underscore Steph Watts. Jake is JKH Cunningham. And I'm Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ying. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.